anyways, I'm grateful to be here. We're going to be in the book of Zechariah. You guys know that we looked at Haggai last Sunday, and Haggai and Zechariah are actually contemporaries, and so they were prophesying really uh, in exactly the same time in Judah. And so a lot of what Springer would have said last Sunday will be somewhat familiar to you tonight, but to set the stage for us, uh, the prophet Jeremiah tells us that the Babylonian captivity will last for about 70 years. So because of their uh, unfaithfulness to God and to his covenant and their disobedience to him, they are told that if they are not faithful and continue in their disobedience, then they would be taken into a captive land, and that captive land would be Babylon. Well, that does happen, and Jeremiah tells us in chapter 25, verse 11, and chapter 29, verse 10, that that would be the case, and that it would last for 70 years. But in Jeremiah chapters 30 through 33, he tells them that after this 70 years, God would bring them out of their captivity, restore them to their land, and have them rebuild the temple. And that's where we would have left off last Sunday looking at Haggai. So as we enter into Zechariah, and you can see here in chapter 1, verse 1, it gives us a pretty specific time. And if you study this and look at this time frame, what this means is that the 70 years is just about up. So as we are entering into Haggai, entering into Zechariah, we're coming towards the end of this 70 years. We have some exiles that are returning into the land, and we are looking for the promises that Jeremiah made to his people. And in Jeremiah chapter 31, you have the beloved new covenant where the law would be inscribed on the heart of God's people. There would be a Messiah, and so this is what we are looking for. The 70 years is almost up, and the promises are about to be fulfilled. So the book, though, as we kind of, we'll jump into a couple uh, chapters here in just a moment, but the book is broken up pretty simplistically. It's actually a pretty difficult book to read through and be like, I know what that means. It's, it's, it's kind of tough at times, and I will say, Almost every time that I preach at this church, and I don't know if it's just the, the commentaries I read or the articles I read, but every single person over basically everything I ever teach, someone says this is the hardest chapter or this is the hardest word or this is the hardest book in the Bible. That can't always be true. Like, what is happening? And so many people think that Zechariah is a very difficult book for various reasons, but to be honest with you, other than the dream visions that happen here, we'll talk about that in just a moment, it's pretty straightforward and it's pretty simple to understand, at least in terms of how it's laid out. So it's divided like this. You have in chapter 1, verses 1 through 6 is really kind of an introduction. That's one of the sections that we're going to consider in our little sermonette. You have that introduction. And then you move from chapter 1, verse 7, all the way to chapter 8, and these are known as Zechariah's dream visions. And if you're thinking, what is a dream vision? That sounds crazy. They are. They're exactly what you would expect. In fact, on the way home from church today, Max told me about a dream that he had last night, and it was weird, right? It's just kind of what happens. It's what we do. We wake up, and you're like, you'll never believe where I was, what I did, and the job I had, right? Like, 
Some of you may not dream that often. I'm one of those people, but my wife and my oldest son, they dream super weird dreams every single night. So when we look at Zachariah's dream visions, they function pretty much the same. <laughs> There's a lot happening. They're, they're pretty wild. And in those dreams, though, here's kind of the things that happen. In, in the dreams, he speaks to their past sins. We'll talk about that a little bit more in depth in a moment. He talks about the current state of Judah. Again, all of this is through visions. And so there's a lot of weird things. There's a rock that has seven eyes. That, I mean, there's all kinds of, there's things with horns. It's, it's weird, right? He talks about future realities. He talks about Joshua, who is the high priest at this time, and then Zerubbabel, who is the governor in Judah at this time. But all of these dream visions are conditioned upon this if-then statement. So you have all of these statements, if you will do this, then God will do this. If you don't do this, then God will do this. So all of these dreams are helping through Zechariah the prophet, the people of Judah to understand what God is calling them to do. So that's how these dream visions function. And then you move into chapters 9 through 14, and these are all images of the coming messianic kingdom. So in chapters 9 through 11, you have a humble Messiah that's riding in on a donkey, right? this prophecy of, of this, this deliverer who's going to ride a donkey. That sounds thrilling, right? If you're thinking who's going to deliver us, you probably don't want him on a donkey, right? But he is. And in, in that same way, you then have this vision of these rulers, right? these shepherds over the people of Israel who will, as the Messiah comes, shepherd the people away from him. And obviously we see that in the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of the rulers. They are actually teaching the people to reject the one who has come to save them. And this is a part of his, his vision of the messianic kingdom. And then finally in chapters 12 through 14, you see finally the messianic kingdom coming and the fact that it will overcome evil and God's kingdom will extend by his spirit. And you have again Jeremiah 31, this reality of the messianic kingdom being that the Spirit will inscribe on the people's hearts the law of God. Right? They will be circumcised not just physically, but spiritually. Their hearts will be circumcised. They will turn towards their God, and they will worship Him in spirit and in truth. So like Haggai, Zechariah's message is really an encouraging one. It's, it's meant to encourage them as they are waiting for these things to happen and yet living in the world in which they, they live. But this encouragement is one that is keenly directed towards, towards encouraging a sincere and robust worship of God. The reason that's important is because Zechariah knows that he is speaking to sinners. And if we know anything about sinners, it's that they are tempted often to not do what they are called to do. Right? We see this in the history of Israel time and time again. They're called to worship God, to obey His command, and they may do it for a little while, and the next thing you know, they're making gold cows. Right? It's just kind of what happens to sinful people. And so what Zechariah says is that for you to worship God and to obey Him, it will require of you repentance 
and consistently turning away from yourself and turning back to God. You, you have to remember, as God is calling you to do this, as Haggai has told you two months earlier that you will rebuild the temple, that you will obey God by doing that, this is going to take a lot of repentance and a lot of turning towards God and away from yourself. You are going to have to put off sin and confess sin if you are to do what he asks of you. So the question of Zechariah is basically this, will you be faithful with now returning into the land and God hopefully making good on his promises? I mean, that's kind of the history of God, right? For these people, these returning exiles, the whole if-then thing has proven true. If you don't obey him, you will be taken into captivity. Well, about 70 years they have experienced this reality, right? So the counter is true as well. If you will faithfully follow the Lord, then he will deliver on his promises to you, right? So the question is, will you be faithful? Will you be faithful in this? Will you receive the promises that God has made to you? Now, think about that for just a moment, and, and we'll talk about it, but when, when I, I think something that I can do oftentimes, and maybe it's because I'm a Reformed person, I can just maybe over-realize God's grace, not to the point where I would answer Paul's question, what then, should we sin that grace may abound? I'm not going to go that far, but I am heavy on God's grace. And so I just have this innate trust that God will do what he says. Not that I will disobey him, but sometimes I'm so big on God's grace that I don't necessarily need to cooperate in the way that I live. Like, he's just going to do his thing. He's sovereign, right? He gave us Christ. He's already accomplished all of these things. And so to look and ask of these people, these Israelites turning, returning to Judah, will you be faithful so God will do what he promises? When I ask that of myself, I'm thinking, okay, well, Christ has died for me. My salvation is secure. It's held with him. But, but will I... Will I remain faithful that the promise of Christ will be true of me? Not that I win my salvation, but that it will be proved true in me by the way I live. Right? I don't win God's salvation, but the way in which I live a faithfully obedient life proves true what He has done for me. Sometimes I, I don't think on that as much as I think on, man, God is just gracious and he has conquered everything. Well, we're still meant to be faithful, and we're meant to live well with the life that we have been given. I think sometimes we, we can have a tendency to forget that. In Zechariah, this is the last thing I'll say for context, and then we'll, we'll jump in here pretty quickly. In Zechariah, what we end up seeing is the quiet outworking or what is known as the invisible hand of God's divine will at work. And the reason that's true is because they have returned to the land and now they're waiting for God's promise to be fulfilled. We're waiting for this messianic kingdom. We're waiting for the law of God to be written on our hearts. And as we'll see in just a moment, we're waiting, we're waiting and we're waiting. So what we get to see as we zoom out from this text is the quiet outworking or the invisible hand of God's divine will at work, right? When it seems that God has forgotten his people, we can know for sure that he has not and he 
will never do so. Right? When, when, and, and you can just kind of zoom yourself into this story, not the particular details because you don't live in Judah. By the way, this is Columbus, Georgia. But oftentimes we can find ourselves waiting on God or what seems to be waiting on God. We're, we're praying and we're asking for answers. We're asking for direction. We, we just want to know what God wants us to do. Or we're wondering why we're left in this particular affair or state of our life and wondering, okay, God, do, do you not have more for me? Do I really have to continue in this job? Do I really have to continue to struggle with these children? And, and we just kind of find ourselves waiting. And in the midst of that waiting, that's when we can begin to question whether God is still there and working. And as we'll see, it's certainly the question that they would have struggled with. Okay, God, you have brought us back from captivity through the prophet Jeremiah. We know what's supposed to happen. Seventy years and then promises. And even for them, they just are in this period of waiting. And what Zechariah says is in this moment of waiting, what you're called to do is to be faithfully obedient because God will always deliver what he promises to you. But what we learn is that he always does it on his time. Always. But even greater than both of those things is what he promises to do will always come to pass, even as we wait. So two, uh, two, two sections here. Uh, let's go ahead and jump into, I'll pray, and then we'll jump into Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, and then we'll jump over to Zechariah 6, verses 9 through 15. But let me go ahead and, and pray for us here, and we'll, we'll start. Father God, thank you for this evening. Thank you for this time that we have to be in the book of Zechariah. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand it, that you would use it to encourage us to live faithfully obedient lives as we seek to worship you in spirit and in truth. So help us to know the ways in which we are failing and the ways in which you have laid out for us to return to you. And so, Father, we never want to fall into the trap of believing that we are perfectly obeying you. Because, Father, we are sinners, and we struggle with this, and we fail time and time again. And yet, what you have promised us in Christ is sure. So help us to have that be the means of encouragement for us, and even this night as we look at this book. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So, Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, it says... In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they, that is these people returning from exile, repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. So the people repent. All right, Zechariah's ministry here, as we see this introduction, verses 1 through 6, really serve as the guiding point of all of the book of Zechariah. So if you want to know what this book is about, 
verses 1 through 6 of chapter 1 really fill us in to that clue. Zechariah's ministry is one of calling Judah to repent and turn to God. So the riches of his covenant promise are received through faithful obedience. If you want to receive the promises that God has made you, then you must obey him. You must follow his commands. You must live up to his statutes. Right? You have this if-then statement. And there's a warning encapsulated in that as well. He, he doesn't just say, if you do this, then this. He says, the, the reason that this should be very important to you as you are returning into this land is the example of your forefathers. I, I did this same thing with them. I, I made this covenant, and I made all of these promises with them. But your forefathers did what I asked them not to do, and look how it turned out for them. So as I'm reminding you of these covenant promises as you are returning from exile, be sure not to go the way of your forefathers. There is a right way in which you are called to live, and one way only. You must live for me, and as we can enter some New Testament language, you must die to yourself. Your, your worship must be oriented not towards you, not towards idols of stone or wood, but to your God, right? This is, this is his purpose. This is what God has raised him up to do with these exiles. But like I said, two months earlier, uh, and actually for us just one week earlier, the people hear Haggai's word to rebuild the temple. So Haggai calls them to come into the land and to be faithful and to rebuild the place in which God would dwell in their midst. But now, just two months later, Zechariah is getting back up in the same pulpit, and he is calling the people to repent. So the question is, did what Haggai say not really work? Are, are they so daft that he's now coming two months later and he's like, hey, I just want to let you know you need to repent and be faithful to the Lord. I know Haggai tried to tell you some things and that didn't really work out, but here I am. What's, what's happening? Did, did they not repent? Did they not turn to towards the Lord? Are they not obeying his command to rebuild this temple? Well, I don't think any of that is true. I think Haggai is actually probably a really great prophet. You know what? He's probably even a great guy. We might even want to hang out with him. I think what he did was exactly what God called him to do. But there are two prophets amongst the exiles at this time, not by coincidence, but on purpose. It's, it's what God has ordained to take place. So you have Haggai encouraging the people to rebuild the temple, to be faithful to God's command. And you have Zechariah calling them to repent and turn their hearts, orient their worship towards their God. So what we can kind of see in these two prophets functioning at the same time is that faithfulness is never in any instance at any time limited towards outward acts faithfulness is all-encompassing. Yes, it means doing what God has called you to do. So for us, it may be sharing the gospel, loving our spouse well, loving our parents and obeying them well. It's a whole host of things. But faithfulness and obedience to the Lord is never just strictly outward things. As if coming to church on a Sunday or even being a part of such a group as this 
a Sunday night group is the height of faithfulness. We should never be convinced that just doing the faith or being a religious person is the extent of what God calls us to do. So Haggai and Zechariah function together because faithfulness really is a whole being experience. It's all that we are. It encompasses everything that we say, everything that we do, and everything that we think. So the function here with Zechariah is, if you're going to obey the Lord, you must obey Him with every fiber of your being. Faithfulness should define who you are as, as my people, not just the things you do, all right? And then you can kind of like jump out for just a moment and see that really the temple, as we're kind of thinking about the temple, and um, thank you, Jeremy, for basically preaching this portion of my um, sermonette tonight. That's very helpful to me, by the way. But what we can end up seeing here is that the, the temple has always been about establishing a faithful people. It's never just been this icon for the nations to see and be like, wow, look at, look at Israel. Oh, look, they, they've returned from Babylon. Now, now look at what they're doing. Look at the, it's beautiful, right? This, we're, not, we're not gazing at the temple. The temple is for the purpose of establishing a faithful people. Yes, it's where God dwells amongst His people, but for the purpose of them worshiping Him rightly. It's one of the reasons why you get into the New Testament and Jesus goes in and flips the table. If the temple is some sort of like special, holy, set-apart place, I don't think Jesus is going to be going in and flipping tables, right? It's not about that. It's about the posture of God's people obeying the commands of God. If you will faithfully obey me, then you will receive the promises. The temple is a way in which their faithfulness can be proved to God, right? So you have to have both of these prophets at exactly the same time, lest they get confused and think, you know what, let's build this thing and let's bring these promises about, because they're sinners, I mean, I, I don't know when the last time I did it. Maybe it was today. I have no idea. But when I was young, I would constantly, and don't you dare try to lie and tell me you didn't do this. But when I was young, I would sit in church, and I'd be, you know, I'd have my hands on the pews, and I'd be rocking back and forth. And I'd be like, God, if you let this happen, I will never do this ever again, right? Yeah, just me and you, Jeremy. So we're the only ones. But I would just, like, in my immaturity of of my faith, I would just constantly be telling God, if you'll just let this happen, then I'll, I'll do this. Right? There's no doubt that some of these, these folks were thinking, okay, well, you know, God, if we build this temple, I mean, you're going to do everything you said, right? Right? Ah, they, they must have been tempted into all of the same sins that we are also tempted into. And so Zechariah would have to remind them, uh, to be faithful is not just about building a temple. It's also about repentance and turning your heart towards God. It's who you are. It's what you are called to be. But what about God's promises? So here's what actually happens. They return, and in two years, they get the foundation built. And, and I mean, it's like, well, two years, that's crazy, uh, well, I mean, for us, it kind of can take a while to even like get windows put in a house. So who are we? 
But then you can go to Uganda, and we're like, hey, we're going to send you some money. And they're like, yeah, the church is already built. And we're like, we just told you we're sending the money. Like, how did you build the church already? Right? They're just different speeds at different places. Well, for them, maybe two years was fine. But what isn't fine is that the foundation takes two years. Do you want to know when it's completed? 17 years later. 17 years. So for the first two, we're probably thinking, okay, we're getting the... We're getting the foundation. We're going to get this thing up. Maybe by year three, we'll be in before Christmas. This is going to be awesome, right? We're going to have our Christmas service in the new building. We're so pumped. Year 12, okay, this Christmas, year 16, it ain't happening, right? So they're, they're waiting because we're, we're just a couple years from the 70 years 70 years of captivity, and then everything will be revealed to us. All the promises will be had by us. And yet at the end of the 70 years, they just have a foundation. So the thought must be, what about the promises of God? Is he going to do what he has promised to do, or is he just going to leave us here to be embarrassed? And if that's true, you know, why even be faithfully obedient to him anyways? That would have been the temptation. Because then maybe they're thinking, you know what? Our faithfulness, at best, because we're sinners, is imperfect anyways. So there's really no way, there's no hope. Why even do this thing? Well, turn over to chapter 6. Listen, and obviously we have to use kind of a sanctified imagination, but if you don't think those questions were going through their mind, um, maybe you haven't been a Christian for very long. Because I've been a Christian since I was nine, and I I think I've probably questioned God at least as much as King David, (laughs) right? I could have also written my own Psalms. So these must have been questions that they, they had. So verses 9 through 15 Here's what really is given as a response to what would have been their questions and would have been their struggles in these 17 years. And the word of the Lord came to me, this is chapter 6, verse 9, Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jedidiah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch, for, she, for he shall branch out from his place and shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jedidiah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord 
your God. So here's this if and then statement again. So here's the problem. How can imperfectly people perfectly obey God's command? If we are to come here, we are to rebuild the temple, and yet we are to turn our hearts and repent of the ways in which our fathers have failed and the ways in which we are tempted to fail and turn our hearts towards God in worship, and yet we are sinners. How are we to perfectly obey God's commands? We are going to fail at this. But here's the solution. God will provide one who will represent his people. He will give a better high priest. So in one of his weird dream visions in chapter 3 of Zechariah, in verse 9, this branch that we just read about, this branch is said to take away the iniquity of the people in a day. So this branch, capital B, is going to take away the iniquity of the people in a day. You know, it's interesting here in chapter 6 that Zechariah is talking about Joshua because Joshua is the high priest, and Zerubbabel is kind of the pseudo-king. He's the governor. Um, Babylon was um, conquered by Persia, and then the Persians are the ones who let them come back into the land, right? Well, you have this governor, Zerubbabel, and it honestly seems most... uh, practical to, to give him the crown, to make him the king. We, we don't really have priests that serve as, as kings. There's really only one instant in all of the Old Testament that we have that happen. So why is Zechariah then saying that it's Joshua, the high priest, who would be crowned? Well, it's kind of easy for us to see because we live on this side of the cross But Joshua is meant to be for us a foreshadow and meant to be a picture of what will be Jesus, the the one who is to come, the, the one who will sacrifice once for all for the people as their king, right? The one who will sit on the throne of David forever. And verses 12 through 13a what we, we see is that God's temple will become a spiritual reality. That is, through the branch, Jesus, God's kingdom promises will extend into all the earth. So, we're asking the question, how are these promises to come about? Well, it's really a two-part answer. They will come about through your faithful obedience, but they will be given in the form of Jesus Christ, right? So how do we apply this to our lives? Honestly, I think it's pretty easy, but I wrote down four things here for us. The first is this, if we're not careful, doubting God can become an excuse for our sin, right? So if we're not careful, doubting God can become an excuse for our sin. I I think, again, if you look at these people, the returning exiles, for the first two years, maybe they're like, yeah, this is going to happen, and then for the next 17, they're like, ah, shucks, those things can be an excuse in saying, okay, well, God's just not going to do what He says, and if He's not going to do what He says, then what's the point? I would assume that each and every one of us, in one way or another, have, have been in that pit at one point or another. Maybe for some of us, it's kind of a perpetual pit that we live in, or we fight against, or we're clawing out of. But Zechariah would remind us to trust that all that God has promised will come to pass, All that He promises will come to pass. 
And even if you are in a season of waiting, and this season feels very, very long, the history of God's faithfulness to his people proves to us that he will always bring about his promises. And for his people, his promises are always for our good. Now, what we don't understand, especially as kids, and I'm so sorry if you don't do this, but we do, every now and again, what is required for your good is a swift spanking right across the rear end, <laughs> right? And we, we can't forget that when God gives us promises for our good, He brings those about in any way possible, right? So dwelling on past faithfulness will spare us from much future grief. The ways in which God has faithfully upheld us throughout our lives will save us if we dwell on those things from much future grief, right? Today's troubles are enough. Why on earth would we and why do we so often dwell on the troubles of tomorrow that, by the way, probably aren't coming anyways? I'm a, somewhat of a hypochondriac. If my toe twitches the wrong way, I'm thinking, in three years, I'm, I'm definitely having a fatal illness, right? It's just who I am. And do you know what has never happened to me so far until it does? A fatal illness. Do you know how we can know that? Because I'm here. Number two, as we live our lives in a fallen world, it's easy to become discouraged and despondent, but we can live faithful lives knowing that God's kingdom is coming in full. Right? Peace and justice are our sure inheritance. That's a part of God's promise in Jeremiah 30 through 33, is this, this time of peace. And yet for the people in Zechariah's time, very quickly after the two years, Persia's like, hey, by the way, peace, we're not supporting the temple anymore. We've got our own conquests we need to focus on. Right? And so Persia's out. And here are the exiles. They're like poor. They have no one to support them. The next thing you know, they're receiving pressure from around. And then the next thing you know, it's 17 years later and the temple's just now done. Right? We can become really discouraged and despondent, but we can live faithfully knowing that his kingdom is coming in full. You know, I, I, I wonder if anyone ever told these people, hey, by the way, when the temple is completed, there's still going to be life to live. And there's still going to be something that you complain about. There's still going to be something that's hard and difficult for you. And so what we're actually waiting for is for, as Jeremy has so eloquently preached my sermon, we're waiting for the coming of Christ. We're waiting for the assurance of peace and prosperity for all of eternity. But we do that, and we have that hope as we live now, right? And so even if tomorrow is the best day that you could possibly have, it will pale in comparison to what eternity will be like. And so even on your best day, don't be tempted for a moment to think, finally we've arrived. Oh, you have not. Your best day will be but a microsecond of what heaven will feel like. Uh, number three, God doesn't just want our outward acts of piety. He wants us to incline our hearts toward Him in every thought, word, and deed. So He doesn't just want us to live and do the Christian things. He wants us to incline our hearts towards Him, to live faithfully, to live repentantly towards Him. And then finally, Zechariah shows us how all of God's gracious plans and promises are fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah. 
So certainly our faith will falter from time to time, but His promises of grace are one for us in Christ. So let me pray. Oh, Father God, thank you for this time. I pray that you would use this to encourage us, that you would use this, Lord, to turn us to you and to desire to worship you faithfully with what you have given us. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.